0: Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. While the markets continue to wrestle with the fallout from the Silicon Valley bank failure and the collapse of confidence in Credit Suisse, which led last week to a rescue takeover by fellow Swiss bank UBS, this week we've had important interest rate decisions from the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, both of which have increased interest rates by a quarter of 1% both central banks are struggling to strike the right balance between the need to continue raising rates to head off the surge in inflation and the conflicting requirement to ease concerns about the risk of further instability in the financial system, of which these latest troubles in the banking sector are symptomatic. The latest inflation figures in the UK meanwhile showed RPI actually rising unexpectedly, still over 10% now, and so-called core inflation remaining at more than 6%. So while inflation is definitely on the way down, it's still very early days, and we have yet to see that show up in the latest monthly figures. At least, to discuss these issues and all the latest news from the investment trust sector, I'm joined this week by two regular contributors: Nick Greenwood, manager of the Migo Opportunities Trust, and Emma Bird, head of research at Winterflood Securities. I also offer a sneak preview of a conversation with Sandy Nan, manager of the Global Opportunities Trust, that we will be putting out early next week. Uh, Regular listeners will know that Sandy was the author of a book entitled The End of the Everything Bubble, which, in the spirit of full disclosure, I was able to help him with, which came out two years ago and uh, very presciently predicted the imminent synchronized decline in all major asset classes, equities, bonds, and property, which we have observed since the start of last year. You may want to look out for this if you're interested in hearing why uh, Sandy at least thinks we are still not through the worst of things. And how he is positioning his trust, which last year changed to become a self-managed vehicle, to pick a profitable path through the current market volatility, which he was certainly able to do last year successfully. Global Opportunities Trust, which has the ticker GOT, has produced an NAV total return of 14% over the last 12 months. So actually gaining in value while the markets overall were in decline. Plenty then to talk about this week, including the reverberations from the dramatic boardroom bust-up that's been going on at Scottish Mortgage Trust, ticker SMT. It was confirmed this week that Professor Amar Bide, an American business professor, has been removed as an non-executive director after publicly criticising the chairwoman and the board, properly to account over its holdings of unlisted private companies and the composition of the board. In a statement on the uh, social media platform LinkedIn, he said that he has decided to take these concerns to the Financial Conduct Authority, the regulator, which is a non-trivial thing to do. Fiona McBain, meanwhile, the chairwoman, along with another long-serving non-executive director, is now to stand down from the chair, to replaced uh, shortly by the senior independent director, Justin Dowler. At that point, only three of the existing Board of Six will still be in post, although the company says that the search for replacements is well advanced. Uh, The shares of Scottish Mortgage uh, currently stand at a 19% discount, which is a long way from the heady days of 2020-21. Although it remains, uh, remarkably, you might think, in the circumstances, despite all that's happened, uh, not just the recent boardroom issues, but the uh, significant uh, NAV declines of the last uh, 18 months or so, remains among the top best performers of all trusts uh, in the universe over the past 10 years. More on this later. The markets themselves have continued to be volatile, with both the equity and bond markets uh, yo-yoing up and down in response to the latest developments on interest rates and the banking crisis. While central banks appear to have steady the ship for now after the drama of the last two weeks, as far as stabilizing the banks is concerned, the regulatory response to the Silicon Valley and Credit Suisse episodes has raised fresh uncertainties, for example, about the extent to which bond investors and bank depositors will be protected from losses in future when banks fail. The week ended with the shares of Deutsche Bank also falling sharply, so this episode may not yet be quite over. Bond yields have certainly fallen sharply since these uh, banking issues arose, recognising the likelihood that uh, banking problems, at least on past form, normally reduce the availability of credit and weaken the economy. The 10-year gilt is now on a yield of 3.28%, down from 3.9% at the end of February and 4.5% back in the autumn, uh, while the US equivalent, the 10-year Treasury, is yielding 3.37% down from more than 4% at the start of this month. The yield curve in both cases remains inverted, which is certainly suggestive of an impending recession. The S&P index uh, finished, however, slightly up on the week after a strong performance yesterday while the FTSE 100 was little changed. The broader All Share Index was down 1% or so, dragged lower by the continued weakness of small and mid-cap stocks. Both oil and copper prices edged a little bit higher, and gold, in dollars at least, edged up another 1%, where it continues to threaten the potentially significant $2,000 an ounce threshold. The Investment Trust Index, which tracks about 180 of the trusts that are included in the FTSE All Share Index, was little changed on the week and remains down just over 3% year-to-date, while the average capitalization weighted discount is uh, still north of 16%, which compares to just 2.5% at the start of 2022. The investment trust index performance, however, conceals some significant divergence in individual trust performance. And if you look at the whole 400-strong investment trust universe, not just those in the index, this week saw that more than 50 trusts were down more than 4%, and that included a number of commercial property trusts, uh, while around a third were recording positive gains. For subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, the podcast subscription sister offering, this week we have a profile of Harmony Energy Income Trust, ticker HEIT, together with our usual summary of the main news and NAV share price and discount movements in the investment trust sector over the past week, year to date, and over longer periods. Very helpful if you are trying to keep track of what has been quite a turbulent period in the markets. This will be followed next week by a profile of JP Morgan Emerging Markets. And that conversation with Sandy Nairn that I mentioned just now. Turning to results this week, we've had annual results from Allianz Technology, ticker ATT, where the NAV total return was down more than 30%, slightly more than its benchmark as well in what we know was a tough year for the technology sector after its uh, super strong performance in 2020-21. Uh, I should say that uh, Allianz Technology is, like Suarez Mortgage Trust, one of the very best performers over the past 10 years, despite the recent weakness in its share price. Mike Seidenberg, who's taken over from Walter Price as the lead manager of the trust, was in town this week talking about the remoulded team he leads and the outlook for the sector now. We also heard from Fidelity European Trust, ticker FEV, the 1.3 billion market cap trust managed by Sam Morse, which is the best performing European trust over the past five years. It reported a creditable NAV total return of minus 3.6% in 2022 uh, against the 7% decline of its benchmark, despite having the drag of 11% net gearing. We also had annual results from Temple Bar, ticker TMPL, the UK Equity Income Trust, which appointed the boutique firm of Red Wheel as its new manager back in October 2020. Its NAV total return in 2022 was uh, minus 2% against its benchmark's uh, flat performance. But the chairman pointed out that since the new management team took over two and a half years ago, the shares are up 57% against 39% for the benchmark, uh, which the board will rightly, I think, take as vindication for its decision to stick with a value approach at a time when some other boards were jumping onto the then fashionable growth bandwagon. Uh, a decision that they may well now be regretting in one or two cases. Uh, Temple Bar bought back 10 million shares last year, around 3% of its share count, to defend its discount, which stands at just under 5%. The dividend yield there is now 4%, give or take uh, a bit. Other trust reporting annual results included JP Morgan US Smaller Companies Trust, ticker JUSC, which had an NAV total return of minus 8.2% which was actually slightly better than its small cap benchmarks, minus 10.6%, though the shares moved from a premium to a discount. Also from Princess Private Equity, ticker PEY, which gave some more detail about what we already knew was a NAV total return decline of 1.6% in 2022. Princess Private Equity has resumed paying dividends after having to suspend the last one, while it uh, unwound some currency hedges, which uh, made paying a dividend difficult. The shares, of course, in Princess Private Equity, like so many private equity trusts, despite that uh, relatively modest NAV total return decline, uh, have moved out to a significant discount at around 37%. Uh, Bailey Gifford Shim Nippon, ticker BGS, the Japanese small cap trust, also reported annual results, uh, showing an annual return of minus 1.2% versus a gain of 5.7% in its benchmark. The net gearing there was actually up to 15%. The manager reported that he said that growth stocks are now priced at levels that, I quote, assume barely any future increase in revenue or profits, which is in stark contrast to their underlying fundamentals. Uh, Biopharma Credit also produced results, a ticker BPCR. Uh, This trust is one which invests in loans to life science companies. Uh, It reported a a modest gain in NAV up from 99 cents to one dollar and one cent but also reported at what was a record year for earnings from its loans. The trust last year invested 665 million in new loans after a significant portion of its portfolio was redeemed. So it's a bit of a refresh there and this new portfolio that it now has generated a gross yield of 11.5% in the first quarter of this year, obviously benefiting from the increase in interest rates. The dividend last year was up from $0.07 to $0.13. So the running yield on that, uh, though the dividend is not guaranteed to rise every year, is pretty significant. We also had interim results from Crystal Amber down 4.4% versus its benchmark's gain of 1.3%. Also from Henderson Euro Trust, managed by Jamie Ross, uh, which outperformed its benchmark in the six months to end of January by just over 1%. And also interims from two Vietnamese trusts, the Vietnam Holdings, ticker VNH, and Vina Capital Vietnam Opportunity Fund, ticker VOF. Both of these reported NAV total return declines of more than 10%, uh, 16% and 13% respectively, against a benchmark that was also down more than 16%. Difficult year for Vietnam. But uh, the manager again saying that valuations now look very cheap in Vietnam. Finally, there were interims too from two property trusts that we'll be discussing later with uh, Emma Bird. CT Property, ticker CTPT, where the NAV was down 34% per share, and the total return was minus 26% after the payment of dividends. And also from PRS REIT, ticker PRS, the build-to-rent property company, which reported a 0.6% gain in NAV for the latest six-month period. So this was an interesting week to catch up with Nick Greenwood, who is the manager of the MyGo Global Opportunities Trust and one of our regular contributors on this podcast. Nick's been the manager there since uh, 2004, and it's a trust very much of his making, specializes in looking for idiosyncratic specific special opportunities in the investment trust world. Well, When I spoke to Nick, I asked him first to uh, give me his comments on what's going on in the world out there, the big bad world out there we've had a lot of volatility. Equity markets been up and then come down again. We've had bond yields going up, coming down and so on. A lot of uncertainty about where the Federal Reserve is going, a bit of a mini banking crisis. So these are pretty volatile times, Nick. So uh, what, what's your take on what's actually happening out there in the, in the macro world?
1: Well, yes, all sorts going on. I don't think it's uh, terribly positive. I was sort of in the camp of being mildly negative in that uh, we've had a decade or so of free money, you know, money being pumped into the financial system, which has been a big support for uh, asset values. Now we're sort of going into reverse where the authorities need to drain liquidity from the system, but they're going quite slowly because markets and the economies are, are quite fragile. But just recently, we've had a couple of bank runs, and I think that it's likely that um investors or depositors will keep moving away from smaller banks to the larger ones. And that will have a, a tightening effect on the economy. So that's probably a, a negative new development and, and markets are beginning to look quite soggy. So uh, I'm wondering whether my mildly negative ought to become just completely negative. But uh, the jury is out on that one.
0: Indeed. Well, I mean, the authorities are doing what they can to try and stop a panic anyway, in, as far as the banks are concerned. Different opinions about how successful they've been. And meanwhile, uh, the Federal Reserve has moderated its pace of increase in interest rates, uh, 25 basis points this week, rather than the 50 that uh, perhaps it was originally going to do. We don't know. But yeah, these are nervous times. And uh, I mean, you've been around a long time in these markets, and uh, it's just natural for investors to start drawing in their horns a little bit in this kind of circumstance. I mean, is that one of the reasons why we've seen discounts widen uh, as much as they have in the investment trust world? Obviously, higher bond yields are a factor as well. But um, is that the main reason? Is it is it a combination of those two factors or is it, uh, is it primarily the interest rates?
1: Usually when um, sentiment deteriorates, discounts will widen. I think it's been more powerful because a whole load of trusts, you know, the recent issues of recent years have, have been in alternatives. And the rise in interest rates particularly hurts demand for those. And therefore, things like renewable trusts, for example, which were trading on premiums until not so long ago, now trading on discounts. And that that's because if you can get income from a conventional source such as a gilt. Why have riskier assets to get a little bit more income?
0: So, yes, if you've got gilts at 3% or even 4%, as they have been for a little while, then and you're getting 5% yield on an infrastructure trust, you're right. I mean, what's... Uh, there's a bit of security in there. They've got a bit of inflation linking and so on. But uh, does that mean if we're right about the markets so and they become more difficult, that sort of whole alternatives boom is going to come to an end uh, for the time being, at least they won't be able to issue so much stock and so on? Does that create opportunities yeah. for you? I mean, you're one who like trusts that go to discounts. Do you think there's uh, going to be some opportunities there?
1: Well, yes. I mean, there's a whole world of, of trusts that I don't really know that well that are suddenly appearing on discounts because... For example, the renewables sector was always at a premium. They were hardly overlooked and, and unloved, which is what we're looking for. And um, actually, I mean, if you would t- asked me last time I was on, by the next time I was doing this, I would own a renewables fund. I would have been gobsmacked if the answer was yes. But um, we bought one called Akia, and uh, the widest discount we paid was a 22% discount. It struggles because it's got a lack of a following. I mean, it's managed from Hamburg. and Quite often, a lot of things we've been buying in recent months have lacked a following simply because the manager has come over, he's launched it, it's been trading at a premium ever since, and they they might not necessarily have come back and done much marketing. And uh, you know, I know all about um, trying to, to market a small investment trust. You, you need to be running up and down Rip and High Street to find buyers. So it is more difficult for the overseas managers to maybe understand the, the closed-end world and, and, and how you market it. So it has a bit of a lack of a following. The methodologies are all quite different. And I think Basically, you know, for years, the trust world was all about equity funds. And when you work out the net asset value of, a, of an equity fund, it's very easy. You run your Bloomberg and the thing you get is a good call for what the portfolio is worth. But with all the alternatives, they've all got a whole array of different methodologies. And, you know, for example, Aquila has a shorter assumption of the lives of some of the assets. And so if you were to extend that and move into the line of the peer group, for example, that would add quite a little bit to the net asset value. You know, it's got decent assets. The dividend is, well, when it's low, it was approaching 6%, and that's 1.8 times covered. Yeah, and I think also the methodologies use, you know, take an actuarial approach and discounting cash flows from years in advance. But what it doesn't do is say, well, if I was to take these solar plants and these um, wind farms, Onto the open market, what would I get for them? And I think the answer is significantly more than net asset value, yet a lot of these things trade at uh, at a big discount. So it's an area that's interesting to us, and I suspect other new entrants to the portfolio will will come from that area.
0: Right, I was going to ask you that. Obviously, if that might become a more general trend, you picked this particular one, which is, a, uh, I should say, is a killer European renewables. They do have another one, which is a, an energy efficiency trust, which has had all sorts of issues, and I think
1: its future might be finite, shall we say? I think that would be safe to say, but it may well have had an effect on you know the, the name of the sister trust that was troubled. You know, having a, a similar name may not have helped to renewables fund.
0: Yeah. So the point about the other one is that it had been very slow to commit its money and uh, investors don't like that. And it's quite small anyway and and all these sort of issues around it. But Aquila European Renewables is the one you've taken a position in. That's very interesting. And you're dusting down your uh, analytical tools to look at renewables. And uh, as you say, you've got to delve quite deeply into the actual assumptions they're making and compare them to other trusts and so on. So some will be perhaps mispriced more obviously than others.
1: Well, the NAVs will be different. So if you take a standard approach and, and move the assumption to line, sometimes you'll find that um, the NAVs are slightly different. But if people just get their spreadsheet from the brokers and you know they'll just look at the sea of numbers without actually making the adjustments to value them all in the same way.
0: So before we move on and talk about what you've been doing in your portfolio, one or two things you have added to the portfolio recently, I wonder if I could ask you to give us a sort of comment as an investment trust specialist on the unfortunate developments at Scottish Mortgage. I say unfortunate because it's unusual. We've had a case where a non-executive board director has come out and criticised the board and the chair of the trust for the way they behaved. And uh, Scottish Mortgage obviously is the kind of one of the flagships of the investment trust world. Uh, we don't normally see these kind of boardroom discussions break out into the open, and it perhaps might not help the reputation of the of the sector a little bit. What would your thoughts be on that?
1: Well, it is unusual to have a bit of a battle. And it does sound from some of the comments that have, that have come out in the last day or two that this may run and run. I think the gentleman that um, left the board seems to be quite bitter about a, a number of things. So uh, I think we'll, we'll have more dirty washing out in public, which is a shame. I should imagine that it's, it's a very stock-specific event, although you know, Scottish Mortgage is the, is the biggest trust. I suspect we'll have all forgotten a lot about it in six months' time. So I, I doubt it'll have much effect on the sector. But there are issues at Scottish Mortgage and you know there have been some fairly um, wild um, comments on the uh, chat rooms or the chat lines or whatever, always mix up the two, but comparing it to being the next Woodford, which is a bit extreme. They do have an issue in that they have a 30% limit on unlisted and they're pretty close to that. Although actually, I think the limit is on cost, which means they've got a lot more leeway than at first sight. But it's quite a punchy portfolio if you look at it. And I think that whole sector is going to be out of favour for a while, particularly, you know, we're seeing tightening conditions lending more difficult so if you have to support an unlisted investment and help out with refinancings it's, it's difficult because that will be increasing your unquoted percentage so i think that there are issues the other thing i'm i'm slightly worried about is the is the 15% exposure to china i think you know china has returned to being a totalitarian state and yeah i th- i think that they can change the rules and um i sort of regard china as, as becoming uninvestable and um I seem to be in the minority of that, but you know we have seen not so long ago the home education stocks, for example, being effectively put out of business at very short notice and with no warning, and therefore they can change the rules at any time they like. So that would be a concern for me as well. But certainly, you know, the Bailey gifford range of trusts is certainly um, something I'm starting to look at, which is the first time I've been able to say that for some years.
0: Indeed. I mean, Scottish Mortgage, as you say, which has all these issues around the board and got to replace half the board in the next few months... Which is, you know, obviously tricky. You'd like to have better succession planning than that. But it's trading on an 18% discount, or was, as we speak. And that's, um, well, it hasn't been like that, I don't think, since the 2008. It had a rough time in 2008, but um, that is, as you say, potentially an opportunity in what is a very uh, liquid trust. The issue there is they have been buying back stock to some extent, but um, at an 18% discount, you would expect them to be fairly active in the market. But it's uh, not quite as simple as that, is it for them?
1: No, I mean, the, the problem there, if you're aggressive on the buyback, you'd be increasing the percentage you have invested in the unquoted. So maybe they should just relax the cap. If people will understand the issue, you don't really want them being forced to, to sell assets on the cheap just to um, conform with an internal or self-imposed limit.
0: Yeah. So discounts overall averaging about 16%, but that is a market cap weighted average on the investment trust index. But that's pretty much as wide as it's been, apart from during the sort of pandemic crisis, brief flurry there. We have to go a long way back to the 2008 crisis, I think, to see discounts at that level. Again, we can talk about the impact of alternatives on that. The net asset values, as you say, are probably not what they're reported to be. There is a lag there. So the, probably the effective discount on the overall sector is is not as wide as 16% if you were to adjust the NAVs. So just a couple of quick questions about the portfolio. You, know, you said last time we spoke you were in watching paint dry mode, which is basically uh, not doing a great deal, waiting for situations to evolve. But you have added a couple of names I've noticed since we last spoke. So one, it would be. Herald, and the other would be Rights and Issues, which I thought was an interesting one. The latter case, Rights and Issues, obviously, the longstanding manager, Simon Knott, retired last year, and it's been taken over by Jupiter and a team of Dan Nichols and Matt Cable. What's your thinking on that one?
1: It was partly to up our exposure to UK smaller companies, and we've got a lot of cash, so um, put a little bit of it to work. Rights and Issues, as you say, it moved across to Jupiter, hasn't really been marketed the discount, last time I looked, had, had gapped out, and you've still got a resolutely independent board there who you know, I don't think will allow things to drift long. So it was partly to get the exposure, and it's simplistically that the UK trades on a discount to the world. Smaller companies in the UK trade on a big discount to larger companies, and at times if you can buy a perfectly good package, such as rights and issues on a 20% discount, it's a real Russian dole of discounts that you know, acts as quite a defensive buffer.
0: And I mean, Harold is also, it's a very big portfolio, but it's been run by a very experienced manager, again, investing in the smaller end of uh, the technology world. What's your thinking on that one?
1: Harold was really more a case of getting the exposure to smaller companies up. The problem we have is that most of the companies are are very small. And therefore, in this particular case, we're not so much taking a bet on the managers, but we're using six or seven trusts to get ourselves uh, an exposure that you could actually move the needle with. Right.
0: So basically, the view is that uh, notwithstanding the fact that the markets are difficult, but small cap looks like a long-term positive uh, area to be in. And you mentioned also, I thought I would just mention the fact that you said you were not keen on China, but you have got a couple of players that are or have been benefiting from China reopening, whether whatever you think about the nature of the Chinese state. That includes the Macau Property Trust, which I think is in wind down of some sort. What's your thinking about that one now?
1: Yeah, it's your classic China reopening stock. It's been in wind down for a while. It trades on an enormous discount. I think the the NAV is in the 130s and the the shares last time I looked were in the 50s. But it's been stuck for two or three years because of the pandemic, because the, the natural buyer of their luxury apartments in Macau, which they're winding down, will be the Hong Kong Chinese. But unfortunately, they've not been able to visit and they won't buy an expensive property without having inspected it. So, hopefully, we should be getting some good news on, on the disposals front because it trades on an enormous discount. But, of course, that discount will disappear because the assets will be sold and the proceeds will be handed over to investors. And what flats they have sold have been on a discount of around 6% to stated nav. And the stated nav is a long way higher than the share price. So, yes, I mean, it's risky because it has quite a lot of leverage still in there. And therefore, if there was a relapse and China got locked up again, things happen quite fast when you have high levels of leverage. So it's not one to um, put all your eggs in one basket. But you know, the likelihood is that these flats will be sold relatively quickly and um, having had two or three years of being completely stuck. So, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating situation.
0: And then finally, I will to ask you about what you think about commodities. I mean, you've got some exposure to uh, uranium companies and you've got some sort of nuclear exposure. And commodities, I mean, a lot of people think commodities still look quite attractive on a medium long term basis because of ESG and all these other factors. But in the short term, if we're going into a tricky period, they might suffer along long while. How far are your holdings sort of special cases that might be immune from any kind of sell off in the commodity world?
1: Well, I think that uranium, it's fairly limited, only about 10% trades on the spot market. And it's this is sort of to do with structural change. It's to do with nuclear power, you know, the resurgence of, I suppose it's deemed in some places as green. But um, I think the current thinking is that a lot of countries would like to get 15 or 20% of their power from nuclear. It's a good baseload and it will generate power when the wind is not blowing and the sun isn't shining. But since the accident at Fukushima in 2011 the nuclear has been in a bit of a wilderness and the price has been down around $25. Well, to develop a mine, you really need about $80. And therefore, there hasn't been a, any increase in supply for years and years and years. And, and now mines are becoming exhausted. So it's more structural in that the nuclear power industry will need a lot more uranium. But it's difficult to see where that's necessarily going to come from unless the price goes a lot higher. And you know some of these mines that have been mothballed were bought online. And the time lag for developing a new mine, you know, uranium is, is not a rare mineral, but to develop any mine is probably 10 years. And, and given that nuclear power has been in the wilderness for a decade, there are very, very few new mines coming on stream. So we just see the price being squeezed higher, particularly when the US utilities, who are probably quite short on supplies, finally decide to get into the market and buy. At the moment, it's stuck around $50. It was at around 25 One or two mothball mines have come back in and, and, and are supplying the market but yeah, I mean I think demand is high, supply is low. Hopefully the price goes higher. And I don't think it's something that's affected by ebbs and flows of the global economy, you know, the the lead times in these projects are so long.
0: And I know that you've also taken position in a couple of Japanese investment trusts, primarily with an activist approach. What are you doing there? What have you which trusts you've been adding there and what are you hoping to see from them in the current market?
1: Well, we've got, yeah, we've got Nippon Active Value and we've got AVI's a Japanese Activist Fund. I ignored these trusts for a while after they were launched because you know I've been in the industry forty odd years and I've been told probably once or twice every decade that this time it's different in Japan and Japan is changing its spots. But I'm beginning to think it really is. And um, here, it's not so much the trusts themselves don't trade at discounts, but there is a lot of value. You know, Japanese mid and small caps tend to trade on very low ratings relative to the rest of the world, and now. With the growth of activism, there's a lot of companies out there getting involved in corporate situations. It does feel like there's a change. So there is a catalyst for change now. And um, it's probably the newest theme that we have in the portfolio. Listeners may recall that it was announced a couple of weeks ago that
0: Nick Greenwood has given notice of his resignation from Premier Myton, which is the fund manager that uh, manages Myco Opportunities Trust. And the board has decided to review its management arrangements as a result. Nick will, however, continue to manage the trust in the meantime, and there will be no change in the strategy of seeking special situations and discount opportunities in the investment trust universe. The betting in the city is that the end result of this change will be that uh, Nick continues to manage the trust, but from a different management house. However, the final decision will rightly be made by the board. And in any event, though, I look forward to having Nick back on the podcast in due course because he always has so many interesting things to talk about, especially about some of the trusts that are off the radar for most investors. My second port of call this week was to talk to Emma Bird, who recently took over as head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. I don't know what your impression of the week just gone has been, Emma, but after the week before that, and all the dramas around banking and so on in the US and in Europe. Markets have stabilised a little bit this week. We've heard interest rate increases of 25 basis points from both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, sort of in the middle of the possible range. What's your impression of how the markets have been this week?
2: Yes, as you said, following the week before, it has been a, a calmer week. Fits your share up just over 2% so far this week to the end of Thursday. And the investment trust sector up marginally 0.5%. Um, I think there is still some investor concerns around various banking issues in both the US and Europe. And then in the investment trust sector, we've had at least one key development continuing this week in, in the form of Scottish mortgage. So there's been some elements of volatility in the week as well.
0: Everyone's talking about Scottish mortgage, unfortunately for them, perhaps, but it is a very unusual situation, is it not? I mean, we don't normally see these boardroom uh, differences come out in the open in quite the same way. Normally, directors, if they're really unhappy, they either resign or just disappear quietly. But this, the non-exec who's been removed from the board of Scottish mortgage, refused to go quietly. That's very unusual, isn't it? And of course, Scottish mortgage is such a big part of the investment trust universe. It's the largest general trust out there, general equity trust out there. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it is concerning and they're going to have to do quite a bit of work, I think, to sort of get back on track as far as the uh, governance of the trust is concerned, are they not?
2: Yeah, as you said, it is very unusual. We don't normally see this kind of thing in the investment trust sector. Scottish Mortgage is definitely one of the biggest and the most well-known investment trusts, particularly amongst retail investors. So it's not surprising that it is grabbing headlines. There's been a few interesting developments with the Allegations from one of the directors, allegations of poor governance. I think that was something that's come out today that he said he's approached the FCA with his concerns. So I'm definitely keeping an eye on the outcome of that one. The board has responded. The chairman will be resigning at the upcoming AGM, along with another director who have exceeded the nine year limit, and they're in the process of recruiting two new directors following an ongoing process over recent months. So I think the governance there has been well signposted that the chairman stayed on for longer than the nine years to go through a period of change and keep some continuity during the pandemic and during um, the change of manager at the Trust. So I think they've dealt with those issues. There's also been concerns raised around the unlisted allocation in Scottish Mortgage And so it's reaching the 30% limit that they have at the time of investment. So there are some concerns around the fund's ability to either invest in new unlisted opportunities or even make follow on investments in their current holdings. So there's been some concerns raised around that. I think the Scottish Mortgage have been clear from the start about what they do. Investing in these unquoted holdings has always been a, a big part of their strategy. So I don't think there's been any kind of key changes of, of concern in the way they're managing it. It's been a, a result of market rotation and kind of unfortunate timing for them. Um, In that respect. So, yeah, be continuing to watch that one in terms of any new information that we get on the specific allegations from this director and any more changes and new recruits at at the board as well.
0: I mean, as I read it, he seems to be determined to uh, get his issues out there in public. He said he's going to say more about it all. And that must be a concern again. I mean, I, I suppose the real question is whether his concerns turned out to be shared by the market overall. At the moment, the shares of the trust are trading at a, at a discount of, what, 19%, 18%, 90%, which is the, the widest it's been, obviously, for a long time, certainly uh, for more than the last 10 years, I think. So that's an issue for them. What do you think the best thing they can do to actually put the situation right? I mean, they've got to come out with quite a strong defense of what they're doing when they find out what these uh, particular allegations, when they come into the public domain.
2: Yes, I think, as you said, that is it. They have to be as open and provide as full a disclosure as possible, hopefully refuting any allegations or defending any actions that have been called into question to try and restore investor confidence. Think any kind of change in market rotation, if growth comes back into favor, if the IPO window opens again and, and they can see some improving underlying performance, I think that will also be a tailwind for them as well um, in terms of their share price.
0: And I guess this might also have some ramifications for some of the other investment trusts where they're the, where they're the manager, which several of them do also have quite significant holdings of, of private unlisted companies. And it will be interesting to see how those uh, boards react to this kind of event. Because, again, likewise, I mean, I guess they'll have to come out and make a similar kind of robust defense of the way that they're valuing their unlisted companies and so on. I mean, to be fair to Bailey Gifford and the board, they have made some efforts to demonstrate that their valuation methods are not quite as sort of, how should we say, uh, (laughs) their valuations are more up to date and reviewed very regularly and uh, perhaps more dynamically, one could say, than a number of other companies that have unlisted holdings and some of the private equity trusts would be in that category. And they had a recently they had a, a big sort of capital markets day, I think. So but nobody was concerned at that point, particularly. So um, do you think that there will be felt in uh, Do you think that the other Bailey Gifford trusts are going to have some kind of contagion from this?
2: I think potentially. I think any comments from the board of other Bailey Gifford managed funds can only be a positive to restore any confidence that is lost. I would highlight, though, that it is a much bigger part of Scottish Mortgage's strategy. A lot of its peers at Bailey Gifford have much smaller allocations to unlisted and much further below their maximum. Bailey Gifford US growth being the exception to that, but that's very much part of its strategy. It's not kind of a listed equity fund with a smaller allocation to private assets for so that one. that it, it, The strategy is to invest in private assets, with up to 50% of the portfolio. But that could be one where the board of that one might need to put it in particular, highlight, kind of re-highlight the valuation process. As you say, I think Bailey Gifford do have a strong unlisted investment team, a rigorous valuation process. So I think just re-highlighting those points again to investors can only be helpful.
0: Yeah, well, it's all very unfortunate uh, that it's, it's come out in this way. But maybe, you know, more transparency, more disclosure is a good thing generally for the investment trust sector, I think. Qualities of disclosure, I guess you probably agree, will vary quite a lot across the universe.
2: Uh, Yes, you can definitely say that. And
0: in these difficult markets, it could become a differentiating factor in terms of how trusts are rated. I think that would seem to me to be the case anyway. So let's talk about some other things that's come out this week. I I want to talk to you about the property sector because I know you were long specialized in the property sector before you stepped up to take this uh, broader role. We had a couple of results this week. We could talk about those. And then I wanted to um, ask you about the sector overall which obviously has been having a, a, quite a rough time since the autumn when the bond yields went up and they had the gilts crisis over here and everything went a little bit pear-shaped for a while. I wanted to start, though, by looking at um, one of the uh, general diversified property trusts that reported this week, CT Property, ticker CTPT. Uh, they came up with some interests which were, I guess, on a par with some of their peer group, at least. They, a big decline in the NAV, uh, NAV total return down 26% or so. And they've been particularly affected by the fact that they have high weightings to industrial and retail, which have been the sectors that have been perhaps worse affected by the change in interest rate expectations. But I wanted to start, first of all, before I ask you about that specifically, I mean, the the commentary, what they said around the commentary was, I thought, interesting. Uh, They said the end of a prolonged period of loose monetary policy has seen a rapid pricing correction across the real estate markets, causing illiquidity and uncertainty that has spilled over into the start of 2023 albeit with a tentative air of optimism amid initial indications of stabilisation in parts of the market. And then they go on to say, provided any impact on the occupational markets is relatively mild, we would expect that the UK real estate sector will see a stabilisation and recovery in the second half of 2023. I mean, that's not the most confident uh, statement I've read in my time. I mean, managers and boards try to put a positive spin on where things are, but that's not a particularly um, positive outlook, is it? And is that one which you would share with those sentiments?
2: I think it's probably quite difficult to be extremely bullish on UK commercial property at the moment. It has been significantly impacted by the rising interest rate Environment from kind of middle of last year over inflationary concerns and there is still uncertainty about where interest rates will peak and when so I think any kind of calling that it's the the bottom of the market now would be a big call but the kind of cautious optimism of some stabilization I think that is positive in q three q4 last year that isn't what property managers were saying they were expecting relatively significant falls, whether they're expecting quite as dramatic a falls as it turned out to be the case, I'm not sure. But yeah, I think cautiously optimistic is probably as good as you're going to get in the property sector at the moment.
0: Timeless phrase that's called on when things are not very well. <laughs> cautious optimism. I guess the point is, I mean, let's put it this way. I mean, if it's the case that interest rates have now peaked or are very close to peaking for whatever reason, whether that's because the central banks are worried about stability, uh, financial stability of the banks, or simply because the economic uh, outlook is deteriorating, you could argue that falling interest rates, therefore, if interest rates do start to come down, that will enable some of the uh, commercial property trusts to be uh, valued in a slightly more positive way. But against that, if we are going into a, a bad slowdown or recession, Uh, That's not good for commercial property either, is it? So they are facing this sort of double whammy, really, at the moment of higher bond yields and possibly uh, a not very positive uh, economic outlook. So I guess the question comes back to this then. Dividend yields on these trusts have gone up quite significantly, obviously, as a result of these price changes. Um, But I guess the issue that we're next coming to Kazan is whether or not these dividends will be sustainable or not. Is that the kind of talk that you're hearing about yet, or is that something that you think might become an issue for some of these trusts?
2: I think it's an interesting point. As you said, the sell-off in the property sector last year and into this year has primarily been caused by higher market yields. The last few weeks has seen gilt yields fall in light of slower interest rate expectations, um, but the property funds haven't been re-rated in line of that, so, and I think that is because of more macroeconomic concerns. In terms of dividend sustainability, it's not something that I'm hearing a lot of concerns about at the moment. If the macroeconomic picture does deteriorate significantly, then I guess you could see tenant defaults and kind of issues with dividend cover there. For a lot of the diversified commercial property trusts, um, they're actually still paying dividends below where they were pre-pandemic, where the dividends were probably clearly at more potentially unsustainable levels there. So they cut them in the pandemic, have been raising slightly since then. But yes, yeah, so for CT Property Trust, as an example, its recent results um, it had 99.9% rent collection and the dividend was 108.5% covered. Now, the dividend is still only 80% of the pre-pandemic rate. But I think dividend sustainability is going to be a key focus for investors. But I think yeah, so it's the balance between uh, dividend sustainability and any kind of potential dividend growth, which will be uh, more tricky in a, um, a more challenging macroeconomic environment.
0: I mean, I don't know what your sort of up-to-date numbers show, but just looking at the commercial property, UK commercial property sector, this is the sort of average dividend yield according to the AIC stats is now – 6.9 percent which in recent historical times that is a pretty high rate and of course there's a wide range from uh, regional reIT at the top which I think is uh, they're showing as 11 percent down to um, some of the others where the lowest is around six percent. So those yields are, if they're sustainable they will continue to look relatively attractive in the in the current market particularly if guilt yield yields are falling you would think but <laughs> if they're not sustainable then normally uh, you know a dividend yield of eight nine percent would you would begin to wonder whether that's really actually sustainable over time. So maybe the market's got it right and the dividends are under threat, or maybe the market's got it wrong, uh, and these then are quite attractive from a medium-term income perspective. Where would you sit on that kind of perspective, do you think?
2: I think it varies by trust. I think some of the yields um, and any fund that is currently paying an uncovered dividend over would have concerns about, but some are paying fully covered dividends with attractive yields that look sustainable. And in addition, that there, there's certain ones that are still delivering covered dividend growth, which is even more particularly attractive. So, even though the, the spreads with gilt yields ha, has narrowed, I think anything that's offering a, a 7% yield with the option for dividend growth that you don't get from gilts, so I think that is looking attractive. And I think the discounts are an interesting entry point for long-term investors I and mean, they could there still, be potential for volatility and maybe some some further NAV write downs in the near term, but on a long term view, a lot of these discounts um, do seem excessive to me.
0: And then the other thing I was going to mention was uh, we recently heard from Edison Property Investment Trust, where essentially the board said basically we're not really kind of big enough to survive on our own, uh, and it was a kind of calling for consolidation in the sector, sort of public, <laughs> come and get us kind of statement they put out. As one of the alternatives they're considering they said that was their preferred option, it was a, was a merger with another REIT. Do you think that's going to become a, a trend? Will there be other trusts in the same sort of position, which are not big enough or may start to think in this climate they're not big enough to, to be sustainable? Do you think that's we will see more consolidation?
2: I would like to hope so, yes. It's obviously not as, as common as maybe it should be for boards to suggest that. it's um, Turkey's voting for Christmas, and boards voting themselves out of a job, but I think some of the property funds are probably too small to be viable in terms of being off the radar of investors. The fact that it invests in real assets in property, small size hurts the ability to diversify across multiple assets. So, I think small trusts are an issue. And I think there definitely should be more consolidation, whether that will take the form of boards following the fit sets of Edison property and proposing strategic reviews and mergers or manage wind downs, or even potentially could see some hostile takeovers of funds looking to acquire peers on, on a significant discount.
0: Yes. I mean, I guess that's the point of the average discount is still around 30% or something. They're pretty wide. So, if somebody's got the courage and the nows to know when the market's going to turn and how soon and what, what price they should be paying, there could be some opportunities there. And uh, presumably, um, one or two investors in one or two of these trusts might actually get a, a kind of get out of jail card, for you by, by virtue of consolidation. I guess that's possible. I want to ask you about another trust which reported this week, which is PRS REIT. This is a sector that always interests in me. This is the sort of build to rent sector. PRS came out with an update this week, some results, interims. They're showing that they fared much better last year and their NAV just up slightly, 1%, I think. What are your thinking about those PRS and, and the other trusts that are in that sort of space? Do you think they've got the outlook better there? They also trade on a big discount now. So what do you think about that one?
2: Yeah, I think as a sector, private rental and residential should prove more defensive in an economic downturn. They're still able to capture rental growth, which was the reason that it was able to deliver a small um, NAV increase over the period in contrast to the majority of its peers. The rental market in particular is looking attractive in the current environment where mortgage rates are increasing. It's more difficult for people to buy. It's positive impact on the rental sector. So I think it, it is an interesting sector. It is on a big discount, as you say, but I think the yield is still only um, about 5% and it is uncovered. So that could be the reason why it, it's still on a on a discount.
0: And we also heard from another trust, which was ground rents income. I think there, another trust, which is talking about consolidation. I wasn't quite clear what to make of their particular statement they came out with, but essentially they are looking to wind that down as well, as if I read that correctly. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, ground rent income have had a few issues over a number of years. Um, It's had some issues with cladding uh, at one of their buildings, a few different regulatory reforms in their sector. And so, the board's issue there was that they, kind of, they knew that shareholders wanted a wind-up and there was a continuation vote coming up. But they were concerned that any sale of assets wouldn't be at the correct price because of the uncertainty in that market at present. So, they are changing strategy to enter a a managed wind down. But I think that the wording was in a controlled, orderly and timely manner to emphasize that there won't be any forced sales there with the objective of achieving a balance between periodically returning cash to shareholders and optimizing the realization value of the investment. So, I think it will take a while for that fund to, to wind down and return cash to shareholders. But yeah, so they've made changes to their articles to enter a managed wind down and to push out the wind up proposal that was initially required to be held by the 13th of August this year. Um, and it was also structured in a way that any single shareholder voting in favour of wind up would have led to that resolution being passed, which is an interesting structure and obviously would have pretty much definitely triggered a wind-up that they were concerned about would lead to some foresales. So um, they're proposing that they change that and move to a continuation vote being required to be held before the end of December 2024, and with just a simple majority required to vote in favour for that to pass.
0: Taking all that into consideration, what do you think will be the end result of that one? I mean, the The shares are still on a big discount, as I read anyway, so the shareholders aren't necessarily looking at an immediate benefit from whatever proposal they come up with. Are they just waiting for clarification about how it's all going to pan out of these votes?
2: I think what they're proposing will pass. They had quite a lengthy shareholder consultation prior to publishing this circular. They spoke to shareholders representing two-thirds of the share register, and they've agreed with these proposals. So I think the proposals will pass, and the board will Enter the fund into manage wind down. But yeah, I think it's still on a a big discount because there's a lot of uncertainty about what value they will be able to get for these assets. And a proportion of the fund is still has an official material valuation uncertainty clause attached to it. So I don't think any, it's on a 58% discount at the moment. I don't think anyone's expecting to get a 58% uplift and receive money back at, at the current. It's probably
0: Mm -hmm. not going back to par, as it were, (laughs) no. So this week, I was able to uh, catch up with Dr. Sandy Nairn, the executive director of the Global Opportunities Trust, uh, an author not so long ago of a book entitled The End of the Everything Bubble, which came out with good timing towards the end of 2021 uh, and predicted pretty much what happened last year. In other words, a significant fall in the asset values of both equities and bonds, and other assets as well, including commercial property. As we all know, last year was a pretty bad year. So this seemed a good moment to catch up and talk about where we are now. This is a week when we've still absorbing the consequences of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the tremors that has, that has sent around the banking sector, certainly around some smaller banks in the US and elsewhere, and prompted a response from the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department in the US, amongst others. So, Sandy, my first question to you is, you predicted that something like this was going to happen, and it has happened, or we've seen some significant uh, blow-ups around the various asset classes, two or three isolated incidents, the gilts in the UK last autumn. So, where are we then in this process? You predicted something like this would happen, but have we now seen the brunt of it, or is there still more to come?
3: So, I think the short answer is there's more to come. I think we've seen the closing of the first act, if you like. I think the first act was a recanting of the view that the laws of economics don't hold and they have reasserted themselves and markets are just beginning to come to terms with that so you know we've seen interest rates rise almost to the bottom of the range that would be appropriate not the top and that's just had a whole series of consequences because it undermined if you like a lot of the thinking that has supported the period since the financial crisis and the ever longer extenuation of asset values
0: Okay, so there's more to come. Is it like to come suddenly and in a kind of catastrophic way, or is it going to be a kind of slower process where we get sell-offs and uh, rallies and so on? And how much does that depend on what the central banks now decide to do?
3: Yeah, so that's almost an impossible question to answer because... Um,
0: that's my special answer,
3: Yeah, <laughs> well, part of the answer obviously depends on the policy response to the issues as they unfold. And depending what the policy response is, then the markets may or may not react differently. So the number one fundamental point for me is this isn't over. There's still a considerable distance to go. And then the number two point is what do we think the path might be? I suspect the path is a kind of sawtooth downwards rather than a cataclysmic fall because the kind of thinking post-GFC was 10 to 15 years of a framework getting embedded into people's minds. So there's a natural tendency to keep going back to that. I think one time we talked before, You know, arithmetically, we know inflation is going to fall. Markets will react positively to that on the basis that now interest rates come down, but I don't see how they can. They might moderate a bit. And that's where you get to the the policy dilemma, depending how politicized the central banks are or how much they're not. So it's really very difficult to guess the path In one go, you have to almost in a sense, guess it incrementally as this unfolds and people react to it. But I think the big transition that comes will be, there's a period when inflation falls and the the time lag allows growth to keep going. Then growth starts to fall because of all the policy actions. And that's when the change in sentiment really begins to come because the falling growth affects everybody. And the other point of this is that governments are going to be forced into very difficult fiscal judgments. And they're going to be blamed by the public and depending upon which, I was going to say jurisdiction, but the frame of mind of the voters in each jurisdiction will lead to different outcomes. So you can guess fairly obviously what French voters will do and we're beginning to see it because the pension age has to change. But all of these decisions are going to cause the governing party to be in difficult straits. And there could be a reaction on the left or there could be a reaction on the right, depending on which country you're talking about and how it actually unfolds. And um, and depending on those reactions, markets may react in different ways. So my kind of quick summary is, you know it's coming. You don't exactly know the path. So you should have your asset disposition for whichever one it comes. And you could moderate it a little bit when you've got greater guidance of whether you take the left fork on the road or the right fork on the road. But ultimately, the destination is the same. That was an extract of Jonathan's discussion with Sandy Nairn. Subscribers to The Moneymakers Circle will be able to hear the full conversation next week at The Moneymakers website. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast is independently produced and edited, and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website, money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.